0: It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 6th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in a lot less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week, a new look for the TechBiter Worldwide website. Every year in January, I revise the look of the website. Actually, that happens starts to happen in November, or at the very latest, early December. This year's revision is a bit wider than last year's, and that reflects a continuing trend that we're seeing in screen resolution. Not too long ago, it was really pushing to create a website that required a monitor with a width of at least 800 pixels. And if you have an 800-pixel wide monitor, you're limited to six to 700 pixels wide. These days, just about everybody has a screen that displays at least 1,024 pixels wide. Some people even have multiple monitors on their desks. Well, in 2007, I expanded the TechBiter Worldwide screen to 650 pixels. This year, a big leap to 800. But that's just the beginning of the changes. Previously, I had used tables To format the TechBiter Worldwide website, tables have been misused this way for years as a formatting tool because they allow relatively precise positioning of text and graphics. When you look at the website, you don't see the tables, but they keep the information in order. Given that, you might wonder what's wrong with tables. Well, they're not a problem for people who can see the screen, but not everybody can. There are those who have impaired vision and those who are blind who visit the TechBiter Worldwide website and use special programs that read the text. Tables are an astonishing impediment to those who depend on readers to extract the content from a web page. So this year, finally, I have gotten rid of tables. Three or four years ago, that might have been a bold step, discarding tables and using cascading style sheets with positioning to control the formatting. I had thought about doing it in 2007 and even considered it briefly in 2006, but I didn't do it either of those times because cascading style sheets with positioning weren't well supported by older browsers. I've kept an eye on the statistics that we accumulate from browsers as they come to the website, and there are virtually no visitors with older browsers that don't support cascading style sheets with positioning. In testing, I determined that what I've done works with all of the new browsers. For example, Microsoft Internet Explorer, anything beyond version 6, if you're on a Mac and you're still using Internet Explorer, uh, the latest version you have and can have is version 5.2. Microsoft is no longer supporting Internet Explorer for Macs, so you're probably using something else. Safari, perhaps, or Firefox. Firefox uh, browsers work fine, version 2 and above. Probably will work properly in most of the uh, version 1 Firefox browsers. Netscape, which is about to be discontinued, works just fine in the current browsers there. Uh, For Opera, it's fine. Safari, Flock, Sunrise, Camino, Amaya, Avant, eh, lots of others. If you don't have a current browser, it's easy enough to get a new browser, download the current version of what you're using now or try one of the other browsers if you're not if you haven't tried Firefox or you haven't tried Opera take a look at one of those see what you think of it the more i look around the more i see usb devices and that made me think back to when version 1.0 of the usb specification was shown at pc expo in new york city sometime in the 90s There was a clear promise that peripherals would be easy to attach and detach from a computer. Well, version 1.0 was never released to the public. Version 1.1 was the first commercial release. And a lot of people called that plug-and-pray. People I considered way smarter than me openly derided the USB specification and said it would never work. Well, it seems that for the most part I called that one right because I thought it would work from the start, since version 1.1 days have had USB devices. Well, today I have a computer with five disk drives. Two are internal, and three are external USB 2.0 devices. My backup device, the one that I bring home from the office once a week, those drives are also USB 2.0 devices. I also routinely plug in USB thumb drives, A digital camera card reader, a digital camera. My scanner is a USB 2.0 device. Just got a new printer. It's a USB device. The mouse is a USB device. The keyboard could be, but the one I own still has a PS2 connector on it. Oh, and that laser printer I bought recently? No serial port on it, of course. No parallel port. No network. Just USB. I followed the instructions and inserted the CD before I plugged in the printer. New hardware, the computer told me, and offered to install the printer. Well, it found the CD, but Vista was unable to install it. This is Vista, after all, Microsoft's secure operating system. So I shut down the printer, closed the automatic installation wizard, and ran the CD-based installer as the administrator. That got the driver installed. I turned the printer on, plugged it back in, Vista discovered it, and that was that. In less than 10 minutes, even with that side trip, I had a new operating printer. And I had not shed a prayer. No matter what you buy for your computer today, it's probably going to be a USB device, if it's a peripheral that attaches to the computer. Today's computers don't include serial ports. That's 1970s technology. And they don't include parallel ports in a lot of cases. Big hit in the 1980s. Whether it's a mouse, a keyboard, a scanner, a printer, a portable disk drive probably going to be usb and speaking of laser printers which i was just doing in the early 1980s when hp invented the laser printer the devices weighed about 30 pounds cost 3500 dollars and had one built-in typeface courier well let me correct myself in truth it was xerox that invented the laser printer they did that at the palo alto research center a facility that was responsible directly or indirectly for many components that are essential to the Internet, the graphical user interface, whether a Windows machine, Mac, or Linux, the mouse, the desktop computer in general, and notebook computers. In the early days of the Palo Alto Research Center, some of the engineers took pizza boxes and imagined what would happen if they could put computer components inside a pizza box. Components were all way too big at the time, but they were thinking ahead. Xerox invented a lot of today's technologies at the Palo Alto Research Center, but they rarely managed to capitalize on them. Park did manage to make money for Xerox, though, a lot of money, by licensing that laser printer technology to Hewlett Packard. Now, as for the new laser printer, it's rated at 15 pages a minute, 600 dots per inch resolution. With HP's resolution enhancement technology and fast res, that boosts the effective resolution to 1200 dpi. The price, $180. I got the printer from Newegg for $109 shipping included. So today's $100 printer is a lot more capable than a $3,500 printer from 20 years ago. That rates a wow, doesn't it? A week or so ago, I received a link to a guess-your-number website, along with a question about how it works. Here's what happens: Visitors are shown the numbers one through 25 in a five-by-five 5 matrix. Now you can see examples of this on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Each of the numbers is displayed in one of five colors. I was asked to click the color of my number, not the number itself, but the color. A couple of steps later, the same 25 numbers were repeated using the same colors, but now they were grouped into houses, and I'm supposed to click which house my number lives in. And a couple of steps later, I'm shown three doors, told to click one of those doors, and I'll see my number. And it always works. Well, there is, of course, no magic involved. The computer can't read my mind, although sometimes I think perhaps it can. The person who wrote the program doesn't have some sort of superhuman psychological skills. I told the program exactly which number I selected. There's no luck involved, no chance, no guesswork. So let's take a look at this step by step. You might find this fun. Now, in a con game, there's usually an elaborate setup. This one wasn't particularly elaborate, but it serves the same purpose. The first screen reinforces the idea that the programmer will, by using his program, guess my number. So then we move on to step two, the screen that shows the matrix. Five across, five down, total of 25 numbers. Each number is one of five colors, purple, red, green, blue, or black. Well, I decided to choose nine. It's the number in the upper left-hand corner. It's green. So I clicked the green oval. That took me to the next page. Now, this is the page that a magician would call misdirection. It's a 3x3 matrix, includes some of the colors from the previous page, but there are some new colors that weren't on the previous page, and some of the colors that were on the previous page are missing from this page. I'm supposed to click one of these colors, and I'm supposed to think that this means something. It means nothing. On screen 4, this is the second step where I tell the program exactly which number I selected. The numbers are arranged in little houses. The colors are the same as those shown on the first selection screen, but the careful observer might note that the number 9 is now blue, and it's in a house with other blue numbers. That misdirection screen was supposed to clear your mind. You weren't supposed to notice that step. So I click the house. The number 9 happens to be in house B. At this point the program has everything it needs to identify my number because every number can be identified in a matrix that includes the color. Remember mine is green even though the number nine is now blue. It was originally green. And the house that the number is in is B. If you go back and examine screens two and four you'll see that one and only one number is both green and B. My number, 9. Every other number shown also has exactly one set of color house coordinates. And now it's time for yet another misdirection page. Now I'm shown four crystal balls. Just four, not five. And I'm supposed to click one of them. Again, I'm supposed to think this means something. It means nothing. Next step, I am faced with three doors. All I have to do is click on one of them. I clicked on the first door. Lo and behold, there was my number 9. I clicked on door 2. 23 was behind that door. And I clicked on door 3. 25 was behind that door. Now, I might think, if I had only clicked one of the other doors, I would have fooled the program. Well, I wouldn't have fooled the program. This is not a physical world. It's a virtual world. And the program will automatically put the number behind whichever door I click first. Essentially, this is an updated, automated internet version of the old shell game. If you want to play it yourself, there's a link to the game from the website. It's safe enough to play. There's no wagering involved. But if you are ever tempted to visit an online casino, or to play the shell game or three-card Monty on the street, keep this in mind. Suckers are never given an even break. It seems to me that spammers must believe people are really stupid, and perhaps in some cases that's right, given the kinds of cons that people fall for. For example, this week I received a message, supposedly from Microsoft, telling me I had won a great deal of money. I spotted four dead giveaways in just about as many seconds. First of all, I received the message about an hour before it was sent, according to the timestamp. The sender's address was malformed and would not work. The message was sent to undisclosed recipients. That means the writer blasted out a message using the blind carbon copy function. Given there are just 25 winners, it seemed to me that Microsoft would have sent a personal message. I mean, after all, the prize is 150,000 pounds. But, wait a minute, the payoff is in British pounds, Microsoft is in the United States. I'm in the United States. Might a reasonable person not expect that a prize being paid by a U.S. company to a U.S. citizen would be paid in dollars instead of pounds? Now, I mentioned that this is a Microsoft email promo, or so it claims. Yet the winner is supposed to contact someone with a Yahoo email address. At the end of the address are two letters, .gr. That means this is Yahoo, Greece. So, a U.S. company is supposedly notifying a U.S. citizen about a prize to be paid in British pounds, and the winner is supposed to call either a British phone number or write to a Greek email address. I don't think so. The full text of the message, if you want to chuckle over it, is on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In Nerdly News this week, Netscape is sailing off the edge. Netscape was the first commercially successful browser. Not the first browser. It was begat from Mosaic, which was the first popular World Wide Web browser and Gopher client. Remember Gopher? Mosaic was the first to allow images to actually be embedded in the text instead of being shown in a new window. Mosaic was developed at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications in 1992, released in 1993. Mosaic, you can still download a copy if you want, was discontinued in early 1997. And now, 11 years later, the Netscape era comes to a close. If you're like most people, you haven't used Netscape in years. Netscape's current market share is less than 1%. Internet Explorer has the largest share, but Firefox is approaching 20%. Firefox's history can be traced back through Netscape to Mosaic. It was Netscape that kicked off the era of goofiness around the web. That's the era that saw companies with no future selling stock at inflated prices, even though they had no viable business model. At the time, Netscape was the dominant browser, And Microsoft thought the Internet was little more than a passing fad. Later, when Microsoft realized that the browser was going to be crucial to the future, the company developed an absolutely horrid Internet Explorer 1.0. That led to the merely bad Internet Explorer 2.0, and then to a marginally acceptable Internet Explorer 3.0. Because Microsoft bundled IE with its operating system and tightly bound that browser to the operating system, Netscape's days clearly were numbered. Netscape lost the lead in 1998, never regained it. Later in 1998, after Netscape had lost the lead, AOL made what would prove to be yet another strategic blunder in buying Netscape technology for $4.2 billion dollars. In the closing days of 2007, AOL quietly announced that Netscape will be discontinued in February. Speaking of strategic blunders, the Recording Industry Association of America now plans to make it illegal for you to use music that you have purchased. How? Well, let's say you've purchased a CD. You take that CD home, you pop it into a disc reader on your computer and you put a copy of the music on your computer's hard drive so that you can download it to an iPod, a Zune, or some other device. The Recording Industry Association of America seems to want to make that illegal. The RIAA is the trade association that seems to like to file suit against children as young as seven, grandmothers, and sometimes even dead people. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a little trouble following the logic of their current idea. The RIAA has filed suit against an Arizona man, Jeffrey Howell, because he keeps 2,000 recordings on his computer. The suit was filed claiming unauthorized copies of copyrighted recordings, even though those 2,000 tracks came from CDs that Howell had purchased. Purchased. He bought them. Well, the next step the RIAA is likely to try is to have their lobbyists buy enough congressional votes to change the law because previous rulings, based on current copyright law, as bad as that law is in many cases, have held that it is legal for people to make personal copies of recordings that they legally obtain if they want to use them for personal purposes. What's laughable about the RIAA is that independent artists, the ones who don't depend on big labels for distribution, have found that a better business model involves using the Internet for the exposure it provides rather than trying to file suit against a sizable portion of the public. The RIAA has a lot in common with the makers of buggy whips, mainsprings for watches, and slide rules. What they have to offer no longer fits what the public needs. It might be time for the RIAA to call it a day. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January sixth, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Don't forget, check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.